Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our hosts, Bob Cheviar and co-host Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Their goal is to help players gain a more in-depth understanding of many aspects of tennis, which are often inadequately addressed during the course of their development. Bob and Scott would love to hear from you on topics for future podcasts. Okay. Hi, all. Welcome. It's Bob Cheviar, Outside the Lines, with my co-host, Scott Shannon. And I think we have a really good subject, a timely one for all of you today how to use your off season. And what I mean by off season is the bulk of USTA play that leads to nationals and everything has pretty much wound down unless you're playing well enough that you're in sectionals and maybe nationals coming up after that. But for most players, there's like six to eight weeks before the fall tennis season starts with day leagues or tri-level mixed doubles, things like that. Making use of a time period where you're not involved in match play is an extremely important thing to understand so that you can keep improving your tennis. I mean, Scott, don't you feel sort of like as tennis player, if you're not looking to improve, you're falling behind? Yeah, at the 2.530 to 4.5 level, I would say that that's something that um, is true. Once you get up to the very strongest 4.5s and up in the 5.0s, now we're talking about mostly tactics and strategy and studying, and those are a little bit more intellectual type things. But in terms of uh, your stroke production and your uh, level of consistency uh, and things that you have to practice on the court. Uh, I think, yes, you're going to fall back compared to those people that are staying on the cutting edge and looking for new information or just to own the older information in a different way. And I think that also, we thrive if we're active in terms of learning. Once you start stop learning, I think you stop you stop progressing in terms of the level of your game, and you're going to be in trouble. I, I agree with that completely in terms of having that learning attitude when you come to the court. Uh, so there are some big changes that players make that are best done when they have an off-season period like this and one of them scott is if they need to change their grip uh do you have any thoughts on on the grip changing because particularly uh players sometimes get to a certain level and but they don't quite have the correct grip when they're serving and it doesn't allow for the full pronation of the racket this is a wonderful time to figure that all out. Yeah, it's anything that you need to do in terms of that 
remember everybody when you go to make a change and you're instituting a new mechanic um it is going to take, take some time before you are going to feel that it becomes more automatic and you have to be practicing in a non-pressure situation so that you'll actually do it because you're going to make a lot of errors and have a lot of inaccuracies as you go through the process of getting the new feel for the new grip. And there's there's other things also that we can um, touch on, but I think the grip is a great one, Bob. And I can personally um, attest to something recently that pertains to this, you know, I don't, I don't think you've changed your grip now for the longest time because you did those changes way back when and, and you got to the right grips and now you can, you can do all kinds of things with different grips. Um, but my point is this, that in, in golf, I had to make an, a real change to my grip. And I tell you, I appreciate as a tennis professional as, and as an educator, instructor, how much you have to respect the amount of time that you put in and the kind of concentration and consciousness that you have to bring to the practice court um, and work at it until you start to feel it and it starts to become natural. It takes so many repetitions, probably thousands, to make a significant change in something like a grip, but you just have to keep looking at the reinforcement about what that grip does when you do it properly, like the pronation on the serve, you just get so much more head speed and mechanical advantage that the students usually tell us, gee, I, I didn't try as hard on that one, but the ball went faster. And I'm like, yeah, that's the whole point is to start getting the, the racket to do the work and get the mechanical advantages working for you as opposed to your own physical body. Yeah. So, I mean, you brought up a couple of good points there. And one is that in matches, people almost always tend to go back and use what they've done most. So if you're trying to create a new habit on the court but you're playing a match once a week, it's really difficult to incorporate it while you're going through feeling pressure on the court. That's why this break period, how to use it is so important. And a second one that the pros definitely use, and I know, for example, I think most people think of the month of August as sort of a break time before everything really gets started and Labor Day comes. Take, for example, psychiatrists. They typically take the whole month of August off because you're supposed to take off from any issues you're going through as well during August. But the great tennis players, they have their own break period as well. End of November, December, leading up to the Australian Open. And two modern players took particularly made particularly good use of that time not by changing their shots so much but by getting into outstanding physical shape andre agassi is one that comes to mind 
with Gil Reyes doing his weightlifting out in Las Vegas. Had an excellent record at the Australian Open. But Djokovic's record at the Australian Open, as well as he's done at Wimbledon and U.S. Open, is simply astounding. He's been in 10 finals, He's and he's won 10 Australian Opens. He comes into that tournament so physically ready to play. It's it's really totally impressive. Uh, so talking about serving, that's that's really crucial. Um, but we can also talk about adding a new tactic to your game. So for example, if you're a baseline player, pretty much, but you want to improve at the net, in your practice games for these six to eight weeks, you should be coming in more and learning when is the time to come, when is the time to wait, etc. Don't you uh, think, Scott, that this is a good time to experiment with other tactics too? Yes. I think that uh, you bring up a very good uh, idea there, and people have to, I think, look at it in black and white. For instance, if you're going to be approaching the net more often, you need to do it a lot. You need to drill, and you need to do it in that you get so many repetitions, and you just come in, even on some balls that maybe you wouldn't come in uh, during a match on, but just get lots of repetitions and get lots of experience with hitting that approach shot uh, in singles, like deep down the line and getting control over that. Because if you don't control that approach shot, obviously the passing shots are going to be more formidable. The other thing is the footwork, getting in there and, and floating through the approach shot so that you're not stopped, but you're still moving forward and then taking a couple of steps and then doing the split step at the right time when the player goes to hit their uh, return then. Uh, those are very important to get lots of repetitions on so that you are not going to have to think about that when you go to play. The other thing is, at a certain point, you should begin trying to put those new things into practice because these are practice drills, practice games, practice matches. The, your whole point of getting us on this topic of the offseason is that we do not have matches that are important. So everything is practice as far as I'm concerned. And you should work at it and then test it in practice competitions. And that will graduate you um, with some confidence that you're getting it. And if you're not getting it, then you have to go back a little bit and start repeating it again. Uh, I remember uh, reading something in the New York Times um, 25 years ago, maybe, uh, that talked about um, in tennis, you basically need to learn something, let's say in a clinical setting, uh, some kind of a lesson or whatever, then you need to practice it in a non-competitive, just a pure drilling situation. Then you need to practice it in a informal competition situation where the match is not like a USTA team match or a ranking match per se, and then graduate up and, and use it in 
the important matches. You can't jump through those levels. You have to go systematically through those layers because your your body and your mind are going to resist you uh, putting it together if you put the pressure of an important match in there too early. So everybody should respect the process um, of gradually taking the new thing that you're learning and getting it to work for you uh, in these different instances. I agree. And I have a sort of related point I'd like to make is that uh, when players are trying to add something new to their game, it's actually beneficial to play against someone who's slightly weaker than they are in strict violation of the old sort of saying, I can't get better unless I'm always playing with people who are better than me. Typically, if you're playing with people who are better than you, they're pushing you around on the court. And yeah, your I think your defensive skills will improve if that's what you're up against, but you're not going to get a chance against someone, typically against someone who's better than you. If you're always on defense, you're not going to develop those offensive skills, which I think both you and I, if we had to look back and characterize ourselves, um, let's say a five, Scott, is like a perfect balance of offense and defensive skills, and a 10 would be pure offense. What, what, how would you characterize your game when you were at your peak? I was definitely not a grinder from the baseline. Uh, I didn't like long points. My ground strokes weren't really suited. I wasn't playing, you know, a lot of topspin until later in my career. Uh, in my 20s, that's when I started to develop more uh, use of the spins and especially the topspin. So, I mean, I was a good athlete and I was in good physical shape, but I also mentally did not relish the idea of staying out there forever, you know, having... 15, 20, 30 shots in some points. Um, yeah, so so I, go back to that scale that I gave you. What number would you give yourself? What style player were you? Zero, pure defense, 10, right. pure offense. What were you? You know, I was probably like uh, like an eight or nine. I was a big serve and volleyer. I hit big mm -hmm. returns. I liked the fast courts. I love the grass courts. And I was a shot maker and I could do a lot of different things. So I would say that I was up there at the eight or nine. I had a pretty big serve. So I got a lot of defensive uh, shots off people's returns. And if I was following it in, uh, I had a, 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 a real above average volley, especially on my backhand. And I could put real pressure on people with just those two shots. So... Yep, I would say that that's where I was, and you yep. would be, you would be definitely uh, not as high in that category because you were a great defensive player. Yeah, but my best wins always came when I played enough offense to bother the other guy. Maybe I wasn't doing it as constantly as you were. I I would probably give myself like a seven. Really? Um, yeah. 
I mean, I, I See, won. I think, your, I think your basic MO was that you were going to play very steady from the baseline, not make many errors. And then, you know, as you as you progressed, I think, um, at least from what we've talked about, you know, you instituted more and more creativity and more offense in your game. But you had a much more solid defensive platform to work from. And you, you could, like, revert to that if you had to. Uh, mm -hmm. I I really wasn't as confident we trying to revert to that, you know. Um, and so I think you had the advantage because uh, you upped your game and I couldn't like I couldn't um, or I didn't really want to, uh, you know, make my game uh, progress from the baseline, from the slower court baseline play, you know. Yeah, I remember, you know, we had the age groups back at the Chestnut Ridge Pro Classic and I. Uh, it was a pretty small draw, and I drew in like the second round this guy, Bruce Iber, who ended up being number two in the East that year in the men's 45s. And I had played with Bruce before, um, not really in singles, but he was my doubles partner at a clay court national, so we knew each other pretty well. And I had been developing this topspin backhand that I used to sort of talk to myself in a fake Spanish accent like I was South American because I could hit that backhand so well. And <laughs> uh, so I'm out there playing him and I'm smacking this backhand around and I'm missing just enough. And I end up losing the first set, 6-4. And then it was sort of what you said then, Scott. I just said, okay, I'm not, I got to win this match. I'm not going to just keep pretending I'm this South American star, I'm going to go into backup mode, use my legs and play my defense. And I won two and two from there. So it, yeah. Bob, you know what you, Bob, you know what the problem was there about that whole being the South American guy? Oh, uh, what your, was it? Your accent, your accent wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My accent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's, yeah, though, that's interesting. That's a good, uh, a good point. You had something to 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 dig into, you know, to uh, you know, uh, uh, to draw from uh, to win that match. I mean, two and two is pretty what pretty much one sided at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then in the finals, I ran into your old buddy Kirk Moritz, who that year was number one in the East in the forty fives. He beat me, and we had played in the thirty fives like three or four years earlier, or maybe even more than that. <clears throat> and at that time, I was in incredible physical shape. I remember taking a tight first set from Kirk, 7-5, and we sat down on the bench, and he was breathing like an old-timer. And I was just <laughs> like, all right, start the second set. Now I really put the pedal to the metal. I've got this guy a little bit tired, I can run away from him right here because he was very tough. Well, the exact opposite happened in the 45s match when I was no longer, I was still in good shape, but not tip top. And I had a set point in the tiebreaker. People are going to marvel that like Bob remembers every point he's ever played. Well, not quite, but this, <laughs> was, a, <laughs> this was a big, and this was a, this was a sudden death tiebreaker then too. No, this right? was, this was up to the, you know, win by. Oh, you had win by okay, two. So it was a new tiebreaker system. Yeah. And 
Anyway, I had got, I had been successful the whole set coming in on Kirk's backhand because he had a slice, but he couldn't really nail that as a passing shot. So I was picking on it repeatedly. And so I get set point. He ends up hitting short and I'm getting a backhand approach shot and he charges the net and takes my approach shot. He knew it was going to his backhand charges the net makes a volley off of my approach shot and hits a perfect lob <laughs> volley over my head so oh my god six five it goes to six six and he goes on to win the tiebreaker and now i was the one who ran out of gas and he had wow. a pretty routine second set so goes back to what i was mentioning a little bit before having that physical conditioning on your side win or lose that tight set is an amazing asset to have if you're faced with, boy, I've got to make a comeback here. Do you have the gas in the tank to make that work? So let me ask you something. Um, yeah, well, Kirk was very smart and whatever. I mean, he did go to Columbia and all that stuff, but, um, <laughs> but did you, did you attack his second serve? Because he did not have, I mean, Kirk, of course, and I played um, a lot of, uh, tennis together as doubles and and work together and we did win the chestnut ridge pro classic against bromley and arts um in like 1995 mm -hmm. um just disassembled them in the finals and um you know kirk was very steady but very smart and he kind of stayed within his limits but did he didn't have like a big second serve you could definitely attack on his second serve and chip and charge go to the backhand and he was either going to lob it or he was going to just give you like a low volley or give you a volley to hit and then you couldn't hit it really to his forehand unless you had it above the net and you're putting it away because that's what he wanted that he wanted you to volley it get it to his forehand and now his forehand was pretty tricky uh harder yeah. to read and he could do a lot more with it so that was one other difference in those two matches we had the first one where i won was on indoor Hartrue, and it was much easier to make that attack of the second serve on an indoor court. The one where he took me was on the outdoor clay at Chestnut Ridge, and I'm sure, I don't recall per se, I don't think I abandoned the tactic completely, but it wasn't as easy to execute as... Uh, I'm not saying even easy, but in on the indoor match, I do recall that I used it repeatedly and I don't right. think it is frequently outdoors. And part of that is just acknowledging the conditions that you're playing under. It's not so easy to finish outdoors. Right. Right. Definitely. So how about when you look back to, back when we were playing high school and college tennis, our actual season was really just consisted of whether it was the two and a half, three months of high school tennis or same thing for college tennis. There was no real fall tennis or indoor championships the way there are today. Um, we, we had a lot of off season time and, you were saying before you didn't even play much tennis during the off season. Um, I, I do remember actually that it was always at the national level, the kids from California and Florida 
who tended to be at the top of the rankings because they were playing 12 months of the year and most of the rest of us were not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I grew up playing a lot of different sports and um, in high school I was playing um, football, basketball and baseball. And then tennis took over in my, my, my freshman year from baseball, but, and then we played in the summer. So we had those, you know, we had those, um, those spring um, school teams uh, experiences. And then in the summer playing um, USTA, except for the, you started much earlier than I did. I didn't start till I was 17 playing the junior uh, uh -huh. tournaments, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, I kind of caught up very quickly, but um, then in college um, I was uh, obviously going to play tennis there. I wasn't recruited for tennis at Franklin and Marshall, but the um, the squash team got wind of the tennis players that were coming into the freshman class, and they descended upon us and they forced us into becoming squash players. Oh boy! <laughs> now some people um, say that that sort of ruins your tennis, but I think they sort of complement each other in a way, especially the modern game where you see those when the player's on the full defense and they can flick their wrist and hit a sharp low slice return, wouldn't you say that they, that it could be an asset? Yeah, no, no. I, I actually agree that it was. Um, and uh, I've, I've used a lot of my squash in tennis and platform tennis, uh, being able to hit that backhand flick of the wrist um, and, uh, and get balls that are behind me. Um, but also squash kept you going during the winter because you didn't have winter tennis um, at a division three school like that. And so it kept us in great shape mm -hmm. and kept us competitive and we were having fun and we were traveling and, and in squash, we were playing in the Ivy leagues uh, quite often. So it was very positive. And then it did take me two weeks to adjust coming out of the squash season to the tennis court because you know my the slice off the backhand was you know the, a shot that you basically hit all the time and you know you had to uh um but i used it a lot in tennis actually that slice uh, was a good shot for me in tennis uh but it did take a little bit of a, a little bit of time to uh, start hitting over the ball again and the forehand didn't seem to take as much time but it probably took two weeks before i was completely comfortable again uh, with the tennis, uh, you know, routine mm -hmm. uh, coming out of the squash. But I think it was a positive thing in, in more ways than it, it could have been negative. Yeah, so let's go back to, just as we wind up our discussion today, talking about adding a new tactic. And I had mentioned about coming to the net more as a, a good theme for off-season tactical training. Um, do you have another one that you might suggest for people to work on? I do, Bob. Uh -huh. I have I have in mind this whole idea of um, being able to take something off the ball and play some some touch, because a lot of players, um, you know, they're squeezing the racket, they're hitting the ball, you know, pretty hard a lot of the time, and then they don't have that. Um, ability to when they have their opponent off balance um throw in a drop shot or you know throw in some 
expecting that uh, it's a feel shot. Um, you know, maybe the other player comes to the net. Uh, you know, can you hit a can you hit a spin shot, a slice, uh, or backspin where the ball gets down? I remember beating John Molin seven five in the third out of Jericho Westbury. Um, because he came to the net and I knew from previously playing with him that he had no clue what to do with a ball that was below the net when he was, when he was at net. So I would just like hit a slice and chop it down low and I would win like three quarters of the points because he would, he would either put the ball in the net or sail it out because he didn't have, he didn't have the feel to do that. But I would have, I had to have good feel off his approach shot to be able to hit the off speed ball and get it down at his feet so that he was totally uncomfortable and i and i say that that's the reason i won that match wow that's that's a great story because good defense doesn't always require a power response and there's a great example right there you know in the top flight tennis i do see sort of a resurgence of the defensive lob where it used to be, let's say, seven or eight years ago, if you were on the men's tour and you hit a defensive lob, the opponent smashed it away for a winner virtually every time. So players got into the idea like, don't even try that shot. It's a waste. But now their accuracy that they have on those lobs is so phenomenal. They're landing within six inches of the baseline many times. And they're, they are able to get back into the play with that off-speed, extremely high lob, particularly in these outdoor matches that we're going to be seeing coming up soon, leading up okay. to the U.S. Open. So I have a few thoughts about that, too. I agree with you. Um, two things are happening um, that are, I think, important with this using the defensive lob the players are getting even more tight on the net. They're getting very tight. And so they're, they're, they're a little susceptible to a ball going over their heads, even if they are very tall. The second thing is there are so many players that do not look confident when they're hitting their overheads. I mean, that's a great thing about Alcatraz. He hits the overhead like full out and has no problem. And then you got Djokovic, who looks like a 4-0 men's player at a club, <laughs> trying to hit his overhead without turning his shoulders into the shot. And I'm like, this is just unbelievable. So there's a lot of players actually in the men. I mean, I was impressed that the women looked at least as good, if not better, than the than the men uh, at Roland Garros and at Wimbledon when they went to hit their overheads if they weren't hitting the the high forehand topspin shot, which of course, you know, they would substitute, but so many of the men were not like really doing a great job with their, their overheads and even their targets. They were hitting targets with their overhead that the other, their opponent was able to just throw up another lob because they really weren't doing enough with it. Absolutely so true. It's an interesting yeah. phenomena in the men's game for that. Absolutely true. And I, I, I think you're correct. It's, it's, not that tough to get it over someone's head now when they're coming in two feet from the net. It's it's the obvious yeah. wide open shot. And even right. at the pro level, you, you can't feel bad. Oh, I'm hitting a, a just a lob. It's it's the right choice and it's a good choice. 
and I don't think it's used in a lot of crucial situations. Players misusing it, and where they could completely uh, disarm their opponent because the player is just so tight on the net and anticipating, uh, you know, a, a shorter ball or a, you know, a passing shot or a low ball, as opposed to going over the head. So I think coaches have to uh, get on that. Totally. So, folks, we're going to um, call it there for today. I just want to say one more time, encourage you, try to make use of this time to do something new with your game. It could be something as simple as adding more topspin to your forehand drive so that you can right. hit with a little more net clearance and still keep the ball in the court. I have another thing, though. Um, I know we have a couple of minutes here, Bob, but yes. um, how about – a lot of people have difficulty and are not hitting with enough spin on their second serves. So take this time to start getting like a good slice going. And if you've got the slice going, then start to get that ball back over your head and start hitting some top spin and getting used to brushing up on the ball and being able to hit like a kick serve. Mm -hmm. That would be something that I think a lot of people could add to their repertoire uh, or at least get it started um, in the off season so that they could eventually add it to their, to their game and have a little bit more in the toolbox. Yeah. I think the players that are playing, if, if they get in there and they play, let's say nine Oh mixed and the five Oh guy on the other side has a kick serve. Boy, do they struggle. They, they're they not sure how the ball is going to bounce and how to line it up, and that would be an amazing asset to have. So thank you Absolutely. all for listening in. Make use of your off-season, and we will see you right after or maybe even in the middle of the U.S. Open. Scott, thank you very Sounds much. Sounds good. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, everyone.